welcome back to Regionally Speaking with your hosts, Dee Dotson and Tom Maloney. You can't turn on the television or radio without hearing the latest on artificial intelligence jargon. But what is AI? Generative artificial intelligence is shaping up to be the topic of the year for 2024 at the Consumer Electronics Show, at the World Economic Forum, and at the unveiling of the newest smartphones. Regionally Speaking host Tom Maloney is joined now by Jerry Kaplan, who teaches social and economic impact of artificial intelligence at Stanford University, about his highly anticipated new book, Generative Artificial Intelligence, What Everyone Needs to Know. The book was released on February 19th. Tom begins the conversation with a pointed question asking Jerry to distinguish the difference between AI and generative AI. When you write about generative AI, how is that different than artificial intelligence AI, I guess, as we know it as consumers? How should our listeners understand what generative AI is? Well, generative AI is really a a new and different form of this AI technology. It's different in in the previous waves of AI in uh, two particular ways. First of all, it makes predictions. So to answer questions that uh, you might have, it looks at what uh, the next most likely word to occur in an answer should be. And uh, it does that given everything that, it, that uh, it's ever seen before. Uh, the second thing is it's, it's much more general than previous waves of artificial intelligence. And because of that, the, uh, the same program that can tell you about, uh, say, ancient Egypt mm-hmm. can suggest what to make to dinner for dinner from a picture of what's in your refrigerator uh, I could design a logo for you. It could draft a father of the bride toast, or I could build a website for for a new business. So this is a really whole, a whole new ball game uh, compared to what uh, the systems that were available before. The previous systems really just did classification. So you can show it a picture and say, "Find the cat in this picture." It'll say, "Okay, there's the cat." But the new systems, you can say, "Make up a picture of the cat," uh, you know, jumping through a hoop and. Just like that, you'll have a, a fabulous, uh, super realistic image of exactly what you were uh, requesting. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing that ta- I take away from your comment there, I'll be honest, is I could take a picture of the food in my fridge and it could give me uh, menu options to go ahead and make for dinner that night. Nothing more frustrating than trying to figure that out when I get home from the office. But um, yeah, w- Social media, I I think, lately has been inundated with photos of AI and, and, you know, whether they are um, somebody's uh, prompt that they put into an AI or, uh, you know, college professors, high school teachers are trying to figure out if students are plagiarizing or cheating using things like chat GPT. What does generative AI mean for people? people, for consumers, for um, social media visitors, uh, for people in office spaces? What, what happens now? Well, it, it's going to mean a number of things, most of them positive, some of them uh, negative. Um, this is a very general kind of new tool. So you can, you'll use it in your everyday life. The main way it's going to impact you, I think, is, uh, let me give you a specific example, mm-hmm. customer service. Uh, what a pain that that is today. Uh, you know, you call up and you get, you know, a call center in, in uh, somewhere in Pakistan or India, somebody who's just working off of a script, or you're dealing with one of those uh, annoying voice prompts, you know, where you, you can say this or you can say that. You can choose one of five options or, or that's the end of it. Now, 
you're going to be able to talk to what sounds like a very natural voice, but it's actually going to be very knowledgeable. It'll listen to you. It'll understand what you're saying, and it can help you to get things done. So it's going to start with customer service, but it's going to move very quickly into being a, a, essentially a, an interface or a front end to all kinds of businesses and government uh, organizations. So today, uh, I've got to uh, renew my driver's license, for example. Well, i got to get on a, a Department of Motor Vehicles website. Mm-hmm. I have to fill out some forms, uh, all this nonsense. And if I mess anything up, I, you know, I might uh, – have a problem, you know, it might get rejected. But uh, I think within a very short period of time, uh, next thing I'm, I'm going to be able to call up the, the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, chatbot and say, hi, this is Jerry Kaplan. It'll verify it to me and say, renew my driver's license. And it'll just say, done. Or, you know, I need, I need the, uh, your wife's name or I need, I need to correct your address. Is this still where you live? It's going to make the whole, the whole process so much simpler and so much easier. So it's going to have a tremendous impact on individuals and on on, uh, consumers, as well as being able to uh, make you uh, much more productive in in your work. We're talking with Jerry Kaplan, author of Generative Artificial Intelligence, What Everyone Needs to Know here on Regionally Speaking. Jerry, how did we get here? So you make the comment, you know, I need to renew my driver's license, and it feels almost like, hey, Alexa, you know, play, play Lakeshore Public Media. Hey, Alexa, Order the uh, order me a new pair of socks, right? And um, earlier you, you talked about um, you know having to identify a cat in a photo, and we we all have dealt with. Click on every picture of a bicycle in the this prompt of twelve to fifteen photos to make sure that you're not a robot. Were those things, I guess, were those early prompts um, sort of the beginning of the rise of artificial intelligence? Um, well, the short answer is uh, it looks like it, but the but no. <laughs> it actually uses a completely uh, distinct technology uh, for those types of applications. Now, you were talking about, uh, for example, you know, being able to say, uh, I, I can't use the name because it's going to wake up here. A L E X I A. And it's, you know, I don't want to interrupt your radio show with that. Uh, which is a great example. It doesn't know I'm talking to somebody on a radio interview, mm-hmm. but the new version will. I can say, hey, don't bug me for 15 minutes. I've got to talk to Tom on, on the radio. Um, imagine one of these things uh, like uh, You Know Who, again, uh, or uh, Google Voice, uh, and where it actually worked. <laughs> you know, you could have a conversation about anything, as people uh, probably would uh, concur. Half the time, these, these systems get things wrong. And the truth is, each of the different uh, queries or questions that you might ask to the current systems is individually programmed into the system that answers those questions by a human being. That's not what this new stuff is. And that's why it's so amazing. What happens is they take a program and they just feed in mountains and mountains of information, literally millions of books and all the stuff you could scrape off the internet, all the, the electronic garbage that we leave behind on this vast digital plane. And um, you feed it in, and the system is able to uh, learn, to, to self-organize this into an elaborate and sophisticated network of information. And that's what it's consulting when it answers your question. So the same system where you can say, go buy me a, a set of socks, is, is, is the same system you could say, Hey, can you explain to me how the uh, how the Egypt, ancient Egyptians built the pyramids? Or uh, I, I need a um, 
you know, I need a, uh, uh, you know, a father of the bride speech, you know, for, for next week. Uh, could you write something for me? And here's a few uh, facts about the bride. I mean, that's a whole different ballgame than what we have today. And it's going to be so much more useful and so much more powerful. Well, one thing I, I can be sure of is uh, the ancient Egyptians did not wear socks with sandals while building the pyramids. Um, we we talked. My wife, my wife hates it when I do that. <laughs> I won't judge, Jerry. I promise. Now we 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 talk about AI, the rise of AI, um, and you know, automation obviously is one of those things that will or has already begun and undertaken jobs. We hear stories of uh, self-driving vehicles and, and uh, cars out on the road without a, uh, a pilot at the wheel, a uh, driver rather. Um, what happens uh, in the world of trucking? What happens in the world of shipping and logistics? Uh, pizza delivery drivers. Um, where are we looking at in terms of what kind of jobs are automated? What kind of jobs are still potentially safe or maybe sa- safe uh, in the long run? Well, uh, I'm glad you phrased that the way you did because uh, you're quite correct. Generative artificial intelligence, it's not what you see in the movies like robots sort of rising up and coming alive and so no terminators you know, we're gonna, good there yeah okay. exactly you're okay gonna, good like wake good. up and go hey wait a minute you know uh, i'm being exploited here you know they're not and then you know wiping out humanity they're not going to be drinking our fine wine and uh, buying up all the the uh, prime beachfront property that's not what this is about there's, there's no they there really generative artificial intelligence is a new wave of automation so it's just like inventions like the camera or the automobile or the computer and automation has two effects. Uh, the first is it allows us to do more with less, which is to say it makes us more productive. You know, but it also, it changes the nature of work. So some jobs fade away and others, others grow. So, um, you know, there's, uh, you're mentioning uh, dr- uh, driving, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first area where I think this will be, have a significant effect, this kind of automation in, in terms of driving, is uh, long-haul truck driving, because that's actually much simpler than what can be done on the on the local streets, um, but uh, I wouldn't really worry about you know all the truck driver jobs that are going to go away because new jobs will get created. You know, if you're as old as I am, you remember things like bowling pin setters, uh, milkmen, and they were called milkmen when I was a kid. Um, uh, uh, telephone operators. You know, there used to be a million of those in the U.S. at, at its peak uh, when the AT and T was the you know the, the dominant company in that area. And uh, today, there's only about 10,000 of those left. And yet, here we are, we're at full employment. And the reason is, all of the uh, additions and improvements in productivity uh, basically makes us wealthier. And what do we do with that? We Money, we spend it. And when we spend it, that creates jobs. So the question you might ask is, you know, what are the jobs of the future? And, you know, those are those jobs that involve person-to-person interactions or that uh, require kind of authentic expression of empathy, like, you know, a therapist or salesperson or a personal trainer. Uh, You know, we're also not going to automate jobs where you have to demonstrate a skill, like playing a musical instrument or a sports like football. You know, nobody wants to see four robots uh, play Chopin, uh, you know, in a quartet. Uh, That's not what the future is about. The future is going to be about people and about the, the connections that people have with other people. And we're just automating a bunch of things which people are only doing because we don't have machines today that are capable of doing them. 
I, I will say on on the uh, the note of music and, and the creation of music, um, uh, I think last year there were some uh, AI songs that had dropped um, featuring an artist known as The Weeknd, I believe, with Drake. And um, yeah. I'll be honest, it, it sounded fantastic. And, and listening to it, I, I wasn't able to tell that it was put together via AI. Of course, there was a, um, you know, there was a, a big hoopla about um, a new Beatles song that had recently come out uh, that included uh, vocals from John Lennon, who's been dead for decades. And um, it, it it still sounded like a Beatles song. And so how, what kind of problems is generative AI going to create for people in terms of trying to understand, you know, what is automated? What is artificial intelligence? Does this bend and or blur the line of reality as we know it? Well, the short answer is yes. And frankly, this is going to be one of those difficult issues that we're going to need a lot of, uh, uh, regulation and education for people to uh, be able to deal with the consequences. I, I think you're referring to an area that's got the strange name of deep fakes. And these are pictures yes. and videos and voices that, that they, they look or sound real, but they aren't. You know, it used to be that seeing is believing. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case anymore. You know, and these systems are going to be used by scammers and criminals you know, to persuade you to send them money by faking the voice of a friend or a relative. And that's already happening. I can actually give you a real example from a couple of weeks ago. But there are other problems, too. Uh, this technology can be used to spread different disinformation and lies. And uh, that's going to be a big problem in the upcoming elections. You know, we're, we're going to be buried in, in, in specialized or customized spam that's been designed for our individual taste and interests. It's going to be hard to tell. It's not from a human being. Because it's going to talk, Tom, about the things you like to do, what kind of socks you like to wear, and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, really. I think I think that's you know, really fascinating. Thing, sorry, I was going to say yeah. I, I think that's uh, really fascinating in terms of what happens uh, politically speaking. Uh, you know, all of a sudden a candidate candidate tapes are quote unquote released. You know, they somebody found a recording from the 1990s or the early 2000s, but it turns out it's fake. It's artificial intelligence, and you know it can really impact and or sway an election and have have just massive repercussions across the globe. I, I know, and that's absolutely true. So what are we going to do about it? Well, regulators, regulators are working on it. The, the plain fact is they're going to make that illegal. It's, it's just that simple. And, uh, you know, violators will, will stop when they have to go to jail for doing uh, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, but if I can say a whole other area, which mm-hmm. is going to be very difficult for people to understand, is that these systems aren't your grandfather's computer systems. These systems make mistakes, and they do it in shockingly human ways, you know. Believe it or not, the current generation of these machines, as knowledgeable and as incredible breadth of, of uh, information that they have at their, at their fingertips, they're bad at math and at problem solving. And they tend to make up answers, as you're probably aware, when they don't know the facts. That sounds so like me with a math problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these are what are called hallucinations. Uh, that's the term that people are using in the field. So you can't, you won't be able to trust the computer to give you the right information. On the other hand, you can be sure that the vast majority of the information you get is correct, and that the breadth. When you're asking these things a question, you're not asking someone or something. You're really asking everyone, and the answers are synthesized from 
all of the different things that have ever been written about or said that relate to the topic that you're asking about. We're talking with Jerry Kaplan, author of Gener- Generative Artificial Intelligence, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's a book that actually has recently been picked up by several professors ac- across Harvard, Yale, and MIT. Um, when, when the big schools are looking looking into AI and, and figuring out uh, challenges and, and workarounds and workthroughs and ways to make it work for humanity as a whole, uh, I don't think... At this point, there is any going back from it. Um, that that Pandora's box, so to speak, has been opened. So, where is all of this going, Jerry? In the future? Well, uh, I think the short answer is it's going to make everybody uh, more productive. It's going to make things a lot easier, and uh, that's going to make us wealthier. It, it's going to be a, a new wave of automation, similar to uh, the internet. Uh, you presumably are lived through the, the birth of the Internet. Yep, I you know, recall. Can you imagine living without the Internet today? Imagine taking that away. Um, this is going to be as indispensable to people as the Internet because it's going to be everywhere all the time. You're going to have a personal assistant that you have uh, trained up to be able to uh, manage your calendar or uh, help you compose emails or uh, answer questions or, or just generally to be a, a, a useful assistant in your life. And I think I think I will make a prediction. I guess that's my business, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to be a uh, a, uh, a insufferable know-it-all about this stuff. But uh, in ten years or so, I I think you what you're going to see are are uh, if you if somebody said, okay, we're going to turn that off, you go, oh my god, now I'm helpless. I can't do anything because my my automated computer assistant, my personal assistant chatbot, you know, who's handling all this stuff for me and it, now it's it's not available. It's like you know, it took the day off. So that that will be uh, it will become indispensable, I think, for many people, not just in businesses, but also in your personal life. I mean, I remember the days when uh, you'd leave home without a cell phone, and it wasn't a big deal. And now you're halfway to the office, you got to turn around because you left it on the kitchen table. Um, you know, yeah. going on the World Wide Web required a, a phone line hookup and a uh, one of those AOL CDs that came in the mail um, to go ahead and dial in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now all of a sudden that the Internet is on your phone in your pocket as you're doing 75 miles an hour down the highway and it's telling you where to go and it's letting you know where an accident is or, you know, a, a speed trap, which, uh, you know, for my lead foot is definitely a, a benefit and a bonus for using that type of information. Um, Jerry, I guess one last question then. Um, why did you write the book? Who, who Who's the book written for? Is, is it written for those those nearly 40 professors at Harvard, Yale, MIT and their students? Is it written for the everyman? Is it written for the, the warrior or is it written for somebody who wants to figure out, you know, how to get involved in A.I.? Well, uh, it's 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 not really for the professors. This is not a technical book. This is written for your listeners, for the people who just they see all this. They go, oh, my God, what's this all about? And how is it going to affect me? You know, th- this new technology is really going to impact the way we live and the way we work. You know, and as you said, it's, it's like the like the invention of the smartphone phone. And so we're all going to have to understand what it is, how it works and how best to use it. So my book, the reason I wrote it, is it's an easy and non-technical way to get up to speed on this uh, remarkable new technology. You know, and it can, it can help you to understand how best to put it to use in, in your life and your work. Um, 
I, you know, I, as the author, I'm completely unbiased, and I can highly recommend it <laughs> as, as, as a great way. Um, it's written in a, in a very interesting thing. It, it, it's not like a long-form argument, uh, but you can just skip around. It's like a giant buffet. You know, if you're interested in what does this mean for lawyers, there's a chapter on that. If you're interested in the philosophical implications. What does it mean for a computer to be creative? Well, I've got a whole section on that. If you're interested in the effects on copyright law, there's a section on that. And, of course, there's a big section explaining how the text in, I would call it, scientific American-level uh, description. Uh, and there's another section on the history of AI. But you can just pick and choose what you want, like a good buffet, and uh, hopefully by the time you get from soup to nuts, you'll you'll feel like you've uh, invested your time wisely and learned a lot about important technology and what it's going to mean for your future. The book, Generative Artificial Intelligence, What Everyone Needs to Know, written by Jerry Kaplan. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us here on Originally Speaking. And uh, do you have any recommendations if Ultron or Terminator should show up at our door? Um, yeah, keep the door locked. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Jerry, thank you so much for your time today during Regionally Speaking. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to talk to you. You're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media. The power of collaboration among youth-serving organizations cannot be understated. Through pooling resources, knowledge, and expertise, collaborations can transcend individual efforts, resulting in more synergistic, holistic, and effective youth-supporting efforts. Each youth-serving organization brings a distinct perspective to the public, shaped by their experiences and areas of specialization. Joining us now is Tammy Silverman, President and CEO of Indiana Youth Institute, who shares one of the greatest benefits of collaboration is the ability to share knowledge and expertise. Tammy, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Pete. Absolutely. So, Tammy, this month's column is about collaboration, and it's it's timely as Indiana youth settle into the first few weeks of the new school year. As you weigh in at the start of the column with this, in a world where challenges facing our youth are multifaceted and ever-evolving, the power of collaboration among youth-serving organizations cannot be understated. Share why you focused on collaboration for this month's column. And you say that it's not just a buzzword, by the way, correct? It is not. It is not. And oftentimes we say we're collaborating, and I've been in the youth services field for a long time, but really what we're kind of doing is communicating and coordinating. So, you know, we go to a lot of meetings where you say, hey, my organization is doing A, B, and C great things, and another organization say they're doing C, you know, D, E, and F great things, and those are all important, but that's communication. Collaboration is really saying, we're doing this, but our kids need this. Do you do that? How might we work together to make this continuum of services? And so it's not just a buzzword. It's, it's truly a different approach to service delivery. Now, how does collaboration work in action? Can you give like a real-life example of how that would work amongst youth-serving organizations? Certainly, certainly. And one of the ones that we know deeply, because we've been working on it for about almost two years, is this project called the Indiana Youth Worker Wellbeing Initiative. And so it, it's us and four other statewide intermediary organizations. So, you know, the After School Network and IYSA and IARCA, which is Child Advocacy, and we're in the IYI, and we've all come together to say, how can we better support our 
staff, right? Like, what do youth workers need? Because we know that healthy youth workers make healthy, you know, can be healthy teams to support kids. And so we've all come together to say, what do we need? And we're going to roll out all these great services starting in October through January that will that will be open to any youth-serving organization. So coming together to really think about not how do I do a little bit more of what my organization does well and what, how do you do a little bit more of yours, but really collectively, what are we seeing as the needs and how might we work together to address those needs? So again, um, we've lived it recently, which is why I think it's top of mind, but we're also seeing it in many other um, programs and instances across the state. And we're going to see more of it going forward. Now, collaboration is a win-win, not only for Indiana youth, but for youth-serving organizations as well, right? And I'm thinking about, you think about organizations, most are nonprofits, and so the funding might be a little tight. So collaboration is a win-win for everybody, right? Absolutely. So again, you can figure out how, what efficiencies might we have. And as I was talking about, we're going to, One of the services that's going to roll out with this new project is unlimited telehealth and telemental health for individuals that work for youth-serving organizations. Well, there's no way any one of us would have been able to um, plan or fund or execute that. But by four or five significant organizations coming together to work on it, we were, were able to do it. And we were able to secure funding because when funders also see that level of collaboration, that also takes on a different lens from their perspective. Because again, we're, we're talking about those deep partnerships that are centered on what's best for our youth workers and our kids. Great. Now, Tammy, I thank you for joining me, speaking about collaboration and how collaboration not only helps with funding, but it also helps with the quality of services and programs that are available for all Indiana youth. Tammy Silverman is the president and CEO of Indiana Youth Institute. Tammy, as always, thank you for joining us on Regionally Speaking, and we look forward to having you back with us next month. It's always my pleasure. Thank you. And you're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Media. A house built by one of Gary's most influential Black-owned real estate developers was named one of the 10 most dangerous places in the state by Indiana Landmarks. And if something isn't done, a key piece of Gary's history will deteriorate to the point of no return. But the good news is that grassroots volunteers are working to save the house and improve the neighborhood around it. Joining us today to talk about the work she is leading to shine a light on what has been called the showplace of Gary is Jide Ekunkanye, founder of the organization Say Yes to Means. Jide, thank you for joining us today on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having me. So Jide, as I shared in my opening, you're here with us today to talk about the campaign that you're leading with your organization Say Yes to Means in collaboration with Indiana Landmarks. For those that may be unfamiliar, can you please take a moment to share with our listening audience the history of Means Manor in Gary? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Means Manor is a community that was developed wholly by Means Brothers Developers, which is a company that was founded by Andrew A. Means and his wife, Katie Means. They were joined by his brother's younger brother, Jeter Means, at a time when there was a housing shortage for the African-American community. Due to the political and racial climate at the time, Black people were not only not allowed to access certain areas or neighborhoods, but they were not even allowed to purchase homes through like the normal 
um, channels that we take for granted, like loans and FHA loans, even uh, GI loans. And Andrew Means was instrumental in erasing that barrier so that Black people can purchase home and be more, you know, provide equity um, among the African-American community because they were denied that right. And this means Manor community was a community that he developed to address that housing shortage in the Midtown community of Gary, Indiana. And he fought very hard so that the uh, FHA would remove that barrier so that African-Americans can get the loans that they needed to purchase the houses and also for the GI Bill to be applied to the housing for African-American servicemen. And they actually were the first ones to, to purchase the homes. He gave them priority when he first built the development. Means Manor, this community of brick bungalows, was developed by brothers Andrew and Geter Means. And so we're talking about two African-American men having the knowledge and the perseverance and, and, quite frankly, the financial means to develop a community of homes for a group of people who were disenfranchised, who were oftentimes cut off from traditional financing and just flat out being denied their right to buy a home and to live the American dream. And as you just shared, many of them were denied their right to access HFA loans or their GI Bill. We're talking about 100 years ago, right? So tell us about how the Means Brothers afforded African-Americans the opportunity to own their own homes. So I understand that not only did they develop the homes, but they also financed the homes as well. Absolutely, that is correct. Before the Means Manor, and it's the proper name is the Andrew Means Park Manor subdivision. Before that was actually developed, Mr. Means developed over a thousand homes in the area and for all races. So he was really diverse at a time when diversity was not very popular. And he actually developed a community not too far from Means Manor called the Means Model Community. Another one was the F.D. Patterson Community. He also built the building named after his wife. He built another building, apartment complex that was multi-use. that had businesses and living spaces, and that was the Booker T. Washington Terrace apartment. So up until what he would do, because, you know, a lot of people could not get the loans due to you know, racism, or he would just take people on their word, and they would just pay him directly. So he didn't have, like, a finance company or anything like that. You know, people would just just be honest and, you know, pay him back for, you know, whatever, whatever they owe for the building of their homes. He also allowed you to pay off the debt. If you didn't have like maybe cash in hand, you could work it off by working on one of his projects or working on your own home. So my grandfather actually, you know, was helped because he worked on his own home when it got built because he didn't have the full down payment. He worked on some other homes when these manor was being built. So he was really wow. creative wow. in overcoming those barriers and those obstacles. It was just really amazing the way he would come up with just genius ideas and just put it, just have faith and, you know, not worry about, okay, hey, this person might not pay me back. That, that didn't stop him. Just went forward with it. Wow. How many homes were built by the Means Brothers? Uh, it, was, it was definitely over a thousand. Some places I read was over 2,000. But he developed communities for uh, African-Americans, for white people. He developed commercial as well as residential. So he had an actual multi-million dollar company in the 50s. And that's amazing for an African-American um, developer. We're speaking with Jide Ekunkanye, founder of the organization Say Yes to Means. Jide, so let's look at history for a moment, right? 
So the Means brothers built the first homes in 1922, which was less than a year after the tragic events in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which the Mecca and, quite frankly, the heartbeat of one of the wealthiest black communities in the U.S. was burned down and sadly destroyed. So I can only imagine that these two brothers, these two African-American men, must have faced obstacles along their way as well, correct? Yes, yes, they did. Many obstacles, but they were very creative in overcoming those obstacles. They started the company with with Mr. Means and Mrs. Means started the company in actually a tar paper shack with only $90 and a typewriter. And they they actually built their first home. The building materials were loaned to them by the supplier. And they was able to sell a house and, you know, flip it and pay that back. And then as they start getting more and more work, you know, they were able to just kind of got a little help there. And then he was able to, you know, go take it off from there because he would build houses and then people would like it. And then the business just grew and grew from there. But he started in the 1920s. And actually, I was told by one of his relatives that the very first house that he built and lived in, he and his wife actually built it using the skills that they learned from Tuskegee University. And, you know, it just got better and better as time went on. Okay, Jide, so I just had a, a moment as you were sharing your grandfather's journey to home ownership and how he worked hard to, of course, pay for his home. But also as a part of that buying process, he participated as well by helping to build his home and can't help but think that the model that the Means Brothers utilized is quite frankly mirrors that of Habitat for Humanity, in which the home buyer participates in the process and is actually truly invested in the home buying, giving of their time and their talent, right? And as I am reflecting on your grandfather's journey, I'm also reminded of the Great Migration, which is well documented and enshrined in the history of America. With over 6 million Blacks leaving behind their lives and sometimes their families in search of better opportunities up north, as well as escaping from Jim Crow laws and segregation, with over 200,000 Black Southerners reaching Gary, Indiana, with the hopes of landing a job at the steel mill. And so ideally, with so many families connected to a business that literally owns the entire town, one would think that housing or rather enough adequate housing, would be available for its labor force. So how much does the steel mill play in the history of Means Manor? Mr. Means himself started out working in the steel mill when he moved up here from Alabama. My grandfather and grandmother, Joseph G. Ridley Sr. and Tometa Ridley, they were part of the Great Migration, migrating from Mississippi. My grandfather was in the military, and they came up around the time, sometime late 40s, early 50s, and they did what a lot of African-American people did, was live with family members who were already here. And in my grandparents' case, that was my mother's older brother. His name was Ernest Baker Sr., and he lived with his wife. He and his wife, uh, Orly Lee Baker, they had hosted and allowed my grandparents to live with them and their family until they were able to secure the funds to purchase the home. My grandfather worked for the tool mill, and um, so he so the steel mill did play a part because they employed a lot of the people so they could be able to afford those, you know, have stable income and living wage so they can support their families. And when Mr. Me started developing this community, my grandfather was one of the original founding owners when it first got built. First Manor was the original manor. 
he was one of the people that was originally owners of homes that Means initially built because his house was built in 1952. And Mr. Means actually built his house on 21st and Harrison in 1952. So everything was really brand new then. And you know, as we mentioned earlier, Mr. Means was real creative. So it was similar to Habitat for Humanity, but in a sense that the homeowners played a part um, right. in building up the homes. But that was only if necessary. It was like an option that Mr. Means gave to encourage people to buy homes from him because, you know, they did face a lot of barriers. They couldn't get the financing. So that was mostly out of necessity because where else could they get the money? Because you couldn't go to the bank and get a loan to get the down payment as we do now. They didn't have the wonderful programs that they have with the grants and first time buyers and things of that nature. So it was a lot of, you know, it was not as equitable and as it is now. So that was just another one of Mr. Mee's creative, you know, using his creativity to create that opportunity for African-Americans to live that American dream and become homeowners. So after years of sitting empty, Jeter Mee's home, which is located at 2044 Monroe Lane, was recently placed on Indiana Landmark's top 10 endangered list of historical structures. And this is where you come in. You and your organization say yes to Means in collaboration with Landmarks, are working to get Means Manor on the National Register of Historic Places so that the contributions of the Means Brothers won't be forgotten, right? So tell us more about what inspired you to become an advocate for not only the Jeter Means home, but also for Means Manor. Okay, well, first I want to begin and say that we're proud to be partnered with Indiana Landmarks as they are a wonderful organization that's preserving history. Every part of the state of Indiana their body of work is incredible, and the quality of work is just exceptional. So we are definitely proud and thankful to be partnered with such an organization of that caliber. And Jidami is one of the founders of the community, and his house was extremely like modern at the time when it was built in the 50s. They had things like surround sound, as I was told, like the speakers in the wall. It had like the bathrooms that's inside the bedroom. It's not normally, uh, houses were not normally designed like that. And the way it was situated was that when you come into the community, if you came in off of 21st Avenue, you would see that house. It was like a showpiece to, you know, to show like how nice the community is and, you know, to sell um, the community to maybe prospective buyers. And a lot of people used to just come to show the homes or the community as really nice community or a community where black people kept the community in a very high standard. And the house, along with Mr. Mead's house, were like the anchor homes or the showpiece homes. And it's really, really important that those homes are preserved because they are a vital piece of the history of the neighborhood. And unfortunately, Gita Mead's house has fell into disrepair. And we, as a community, we don't want it to you know, be destroyed by blight or decay. And so we spearheaded that effort so that the house can be restored to its original glory. Um, the community, even before I even took on the project, the Means Manor community members have been keeping up the house because as long as it's been in the situation that it's been in, mm-hmm. you know how the forest would have taken it over by now. Right, right. But community members have taken their time and their resources keeping the yard cut, keeping the trees down, you know, because they don't want their house to fall, you know, just fall down to the ground and be forgotten. So I'm really inspired by the Means Manor community itself since its inception 
It has been a really tight-knit community, a close community. The neighbors truly love each other, where they help each other out. It's not uncommon to see somebody mowing another person's yard or helping them with housework or anything, you know. And it's a family-friendly community where children can play safely. It's always been like that. So it's no surprise that they would take it upon themselves to keep a home in disrepair, not to go fully, completely um, destroy, even though the owner was is absent or, you know, whatever reason they're not able to maintain the property, it was still being maintained the best that it could be, you know, because they're just outside yeah. by the community members. And I think that's the, really the crux of uh, Means Manor is that the people had truly loved their community and they do everything they can to keep it to a, a very high standard. And they truly have love for each other and a serious, true community spirit. And I think that really is what inspires me also to do the, the project to make sure that not only the, the memory of Mr. Means, uh, Mr. Jeter Means legacy, their great body of work, but also included in that is the great community that is, that is the reason why the neighborhood even still stands because the people in the community are really serious about, you know, having setting a certain standard and keeping their neighborhood to be, you know, just a great place to live. Gita, I'm thinking about the height of the pandemic when many of us reevaluated our life's purpose, if you will, and you were led back to your grandfather's home. So is that when you began to do the work that you're doing on behalf of the residents in Means Manor with your organization, Say Yes to Means? Well, actually, it started way before the pandemic. Growing up as a young child, we were always taught about Andrew Means and the Means brothers. That is something that's ingrained since a small child by my father and my grandparents, neighbors, and they will always talk about, you know, the wonderful things that uh, Mr. Means did for people in the community, his legacy, the way he, you know, just like the story I told you about my grandfather working off the uh, debt. My grandfather, you know, he told me that story way before the pandemic. Wow. So the the whole story, the whole legacy, the importance of legacy that has always been ingrained in me. And I kind of took on the project because I was under the impression, because I always visited my grandparents, visited the neighborhood. All the neighbors knew me, you know, from a child, you know. Mm -hmm. So I always had an intimate relationship with the community, even though I didn't grow up in that community. You know, I grew up actually in Florida, but always well aware of Mr. Means' legacy, his impact on not only the Means Manor community, but the community of Gary. Um, as a whole, you know, how he impacted this whole area and his good works, you know, on some things were known publicly, some things not known publicly, but he was a tireless advocate for the community. And, you know, and people really appreciated this. So you were always here. If it's my grandparents were telling me a story, it was my father, it was their neighbors, and it, you always hear good things. And so I thought that the neighborhoods was already like a historic district or had some type of designation as far as its historic status. And I took on the project actually in 2019 when I found out that it was not, you know, set as a historically significant place. And that's what really started to say yes to me. We actually started in 2019 exploring, the, you know, what needed to place it on the National Register of Historic Places. And we, you know, met with the community and they were all in agreements and gave me the permission to pursue the project. And, um, and that's when, when it all started. So everything else that happened after that, you know, just 
you know, things that happen in life, <laughs> you just keep going and you adjust to it. In reflecting on our time here today, I cannot help but remember that 100 years ago, two black men from Alabama, two black men from Alabama developed a community for blacks in Gary. And so I'm thinking about the historical currency of what that means, right? And I understand that through your organization, Say Yes to Means, you're looking to develop a digital museum of sorts in which you can kind of collect and share those stories that may have been lost. I mean, it's been 100 years to collect any story, any recollection, any sort of memorabilia from that time. And so for those that may have a story, that may have an artifact, that may have something to say, how can they share that with your organization, Say Yes to Means? Yes, um. You mentioned, thank you for mentioning our Share Your Stories project. Um, we are embarking on a historical preservation project, another aspect of it. And we want to preserve the as much history as we can. So one, one facet of that, preserving the Jitamese house, placing the whole community on the National Register of Historic Places. But, you know, those are just two things. We want to keep the story alive by reaching out to the community and asking them if they could share any stories they have about Andrew Mees, Gita Mees, Mees Manor, or anything they feel is relevant to the history of Mees Manor is very important and to preserving the history so that it won't be forgotten. So with this project, is um, we just started it this year, and we really encourage any and everyone in the community that has a story. There's no such thing as an unimportant or insignificant story. Every story is important. Every voice matters. Every voice needs to be heard. And we really encourage you to reach out to us. Either you can contact us by website. We have a special part of our website set up to that. And that's at sayyestomeans.org slash share your story. Or you can go to our website, sayyestomeans.org, and select the share your stories um, button. And we'll have a form where you can fill out and you can submit anything, artifacts, pictures, videos. You want to write a story or you can give us a call to make an appointment where someone can, from our organization can interview you or by any method that you prefer, telephone in person or Zoom. And that number is 773-259-9378. So if you know anyone that has a story or you yourself are interested, by all means, please, we'd be more than happy to, to hear your story and record your story for posterity so that future generations can have this as a, a resource, historical resource that's very important because if, you know, once people are gone, those stories are largely forgotten and they can never, ever be recovered. So, G-Day, just to piggyback on the work that you're doing to collect those stories so that the contributions of the Means Brothers won't be forgotten, I just wanted to share that having those voices, having those stories, having those artifacts really and truly does impact the community. So we here at Lakeshore Public Radio, we carry a program called The Welcome Project in collaboration with Valparaiso University. And The Welcome Project, in their own words, they collect first-person stories to help facilitate conversation, 
but also forge stronger ties within and across our community. And so the work that you're doing to collect first-person stories in relation to Means Manor will have a positive impact on the Northwest Indiana community as a whole. And so we thank you for collecting those first-person stories and keeping the legacy of the Means Brothers alive. We thank you for providing this platform and bringing awareness to the project. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to provide that. Jide Ekunkanye is the founder of the organization Say Yes to Means, located in Geary, Indiana. Jide, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking, sharing the work that you're doing to preserve the showplace of Geary before it's forgotten. You're welcome, and thank you again, Dean. That's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guests, and we'll be back with you next Friday with an all-new show.